We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today is in the Delaware Sports Hall of Fame. He's also in the College Football Hall of Fame, and he's also in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. When he retired in 1988, he had the second most sacks all time for a defensive tackle. He was a key player in the Doomsday 2 defense that picked up where Doomsday 1 left off. And he was nicknamed Manster by his own teammate due to the level of intensity he played with at all times. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome an all-time Cowboy great, Mr. Randy White. Randy, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Well, thank you for having me. Actually, yesterday, I, I went to Fort Worth, Texas, which I haven't been to Fort Worth in quite a while. And after I retired from football, I really uh, enjoyed getting into uh, the rodeo. I rode cutting horses and I rode, uh, did team roping out of arena here at the house and uh, really got into the uh, Western way of life. And anyway, I got inducted into the, the Cowboy Hall of Fame. And I went out there, they changed it all around. And I went out there and uh, went through the Cowboy Hall of Fame yesterday, which was a which a great experience. And I thought I'd just share that and give them a little publicity here. And if you're ever in Fort Worth, Texas, and you want to go see the, uh, something that's very interesting, you just go through the Cowboy Hall of Fame. So oh, that, uh, I want to get that in there on, on that on that conversation if that's okay rich oh of course that's awesome are you the first dallas cowboy to be put into the cowboy hall of fame to your knowledge no walt garrison i know walt walt garrison was in the cowboy hall of fame before me and uh jay Novacek, uh who played after i retired uh he's he's a horse guy and a western guy and he uh He's in the in the uh, out there in the Cowboy Hall of Fame with Fort Worth. Okay, you know, and what I love about those two guys, not only did they just look like cowboys. Walt Garrison went to Oklahoma State; he was a cowboy, and Jay Novacek went to Wyoming; he was a cowboy. <laughs> it's just amazing. And then they played for the Cowboys, and they're cowboys. Oh uh, yeah, Walt. When I retired from uh, when I retired from football, I was looking for something that was a challenge to do. And, you know, I, I trained my martial arts. I, you know, still stay involved with that. But uh, I said, well, I decided I wanted a team rope. And anyway, long story short, Walt said, come on over to the house, Randy. He said, I'll, I got a horse you can ride. I got ropes. I got cattle. I got all the stuff. And he said, well, you can't. He watched me ride a horse. He watched me swing a rope. He says, well, you can't ride a horse or swing a rope. He says, you got to learn to ride the horse. And he sent me to a neighbor of mine over here where I, where I had moved to in Prosper, Texas. 
Punk Carter, who in the cutting horse world and the cowboy world is a was a hero, right? He and his brother Roy had the bull kid, Kid Rock, and his dad was a, was a real cowboy. I mean, they were. And I got with them and, and learned to ride a horse and then started team roping. And, you know, I had, I had so much fun doing that. That was, that was enjoying. It wasn't much fun as football, but it was a whole lot of fun. <laughs> that's awesome. That is, that's very cool. Um, yeah. Well, Randy, before, before you came to Texas, you were, you were, well, you were actually born in Pittsburgh, but you were, you were raised in Delaware, right? In the Wilmington, Delaware area and went to McKean high school. Your father was a butcher. Tell me a little bit about growing up in Delaware, your high school years, what you played besides football, um, and how you ultimately chose Maryland, uh, you know, back in the early 70s for college. Well, I could tell you my dad, uh, you know, I wasn't around, but he, he uh, I ended up in Pittsburgh, being born in Pittsburgh, because my dad came back from the Second World War. He was a paratrooper, 101st Airborne jumped at the Battle of the Balls. He was a staff sergeant. Uh, you know, he was in the, he was in the middle of that, and he came back from uh, the war, and he didn't want to go to, and he didn't want to go into the, uh, he worked in the coal mines for a while, and he decided that wasn't what he wanted to do. And anyway, he and my mom, I guess they moved to Pittsburgh, had me, and then she was homesick, for Pine Grove, Pennsylvania, a little bitty uh, town in, in off of Route 81, north of Harrisburg, south of Scranton, Wilkesboro, in in Pennsylvania, and so they moved to Wilmington, Delaware, which was about an hour and a half from Pine Grove. Up around, you go, we would go through Lancaster, and we were kids, and we see the horse and buggies and the. Uh, all the Amish people and, and the Mennonites, the Mennonites would have the cars with no chrome on them. But anyway, that's uh, that's how we ended up moving to Delaware. My dad moved there to find work. And I grew up in I grew up there and right outside of Wilmington, Delaware. So I had the uh, I had the best of both worlds, I guess, if you want to put it that way. I, I was a city as city could be, being around Wilmington in the suburb there. And when I went to Pine Grove, it was as country as country could be. So I saw uh, I saw uh, the best of both worlds. Uh, you know, my grandfather had a pigeon shoot every uh, every weekend. He had a pigeon shoot out there at the clubhouse. Uh, and I was a little kid, so I was. I was around all that type of, of activities. That's cool. Um, and and you go to you go to high school, like you said, you go to high school in Wilmington at McKean High. And um, did you did you play other sports besides football? Actually, uh, you know, my favorite sport was baseball. Okay. I'm being honest with you. Baseball was my favorite sport. I, mean, I love football. I, I love play football. I love to play basketball. Basketball, I was a hatchet man. You know, I, I mean, we had guys that were good at basketball, but uh, uh, the 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 baseball. I don't know if you've ever remember a guy named Peanuts Lowry was a scout with the Philadelphia Phillies. Sure. And after my last game uh, in high school. Peanuts Lowry offered me $30,000 to sign with the Phillies. Now, now you can imagine how much money $30,000 was to me back in 1971. I mean, I thought that I'd be rich forever. (laughs) (laughs) And and we had a meeting there. My dad was there and he made, he made the offer. He said, the Phillies would like to offer you this and you can, play for the field bye-bye and uh my dad said he's going to college and play football he's not playing baseball true story my dad (laughs) told told that and that was basically the end of my baseball career i ended up going um i had three choices i could have went to arizona state virginia tech and maryland and maryland was an hour and a half south of 
of Wilmington. It was close to home. Uh, and I just, I chose Maryland cause it was, it was close and my parents could, uh, I could get back and forth and they wanted to come watch a game. They could come watch a game. So that's, that's how I ended up at Maryland. That's cool. And, and this of course is just before the era where freshmen can play varsity. So you get there and you, you, you can't be on the varsity. You just, you just have to be on the freshman team. And the varsity team is struggling. They're two and nine. They've got you playing fullback with the freshmen. And then they fire the coach, Roy Lester, and they bring in Jerry Claiborne, who had both played for and coached for Bear Bryant. And man, did things turn around fast when he came in, including with you when he changed your position. Tell me a little bit about when Claiborne came in. Well, Coach Claiborne, my rookie year we had uh, Roy Lester was the coach that that uh, recruited me and gave me a scholarship and then coach Claiborne came in and he turned that whole program around I think I remember Maryland being ranked in the bottom 10 teams in the country when uh, coach Claiborne came in and then when he left we played uh, my junior year in the uh, Liberty Bowl and then my senior year I think we played in the Peach Bowl one or the other, I forget which first, but uh, but he came in and turned that whole program around. He moved me from fullback out to defensive end. Well, I was a fullback and a linebacker, and then he moved me out to defensive end. And and his wide tackle six was, which was a, you know, it was a perfect position for me. Uh, and he introduced weightlifting. You know, not many schools back then. Uh, had a weightlifting program. Well, he implemented that weightlifting program, and we didn't have the greatest talent at that time, but we had guys that were strong and wanted to play, and he, Coach Claiborne came in there and just turned that whole program around. He, in so many ways, uh, you know, different people, Coach Landry, Jerry Claiborne, but you know, real Christian men put a big emphasis on discipline. Uh, you know, he was a teacher. Jerry Claiborne was a teacher. And he really did prepare me to move on and go uh, and further my career in the football arena. He really did. And in not also, not just football, but in life, you know. He used to tell us, do the little things right. If I can't count on you to do the little things right, how am I going to count on you to do the big things right? You know, he would come check our, our, our rooms. We had to have our bed made every day. No paper, no dirt, no garbage on the floor. I mean, that's the, the kind of stuff he taught each and every one of, of us. So we, every guy that played for uh, Jerry Claiborne walked away, not only as a better football player, but as a better person. That's amazing. Yeah. And, yeah. and looking at the progression, I mean, so your freshman year, the team went two and nine. By the time you're seniors, you're, you win the ACC, you're six and oh, you go eight and four right. overall. In the six conference games in the ACC, you guys gave up 35 points. You gave up less than six points a game. You only gave up 100 points on the year. You gave up like eight points a game total. And your losses were by five to Alabama, seven to Florida, seven to Penn State, and four to Tennessee. I mean, every game you played, you either won or it was a you know a touchdown game or less. Uh, that Alabama game, I still remember. Uh, it was a quarterback, Richard Todd, but he was a quarterback. And I remember I hit him. He fumbled the ball. And we almost got it. If we could have got it, we could have kicked. A, it was it was a one point game, I think. Mm-hmm. Or no, it was a five point game. But we would have had to score a touchdown. But we would have had a chance to win it at the end. And if we could have beat, oh, if we could have beat Alabama, that would have been uh, that would have begun the game of my career. <laughs> yeah, and especially for Claiborne, having played for you know for Bear Bryant, that would have been so cool for him too. Oh yeah. And and I got I had an opportunity to meet Bear Bryant, which was a great great experience. He was very 
uh, complimentary to me. It was after we played them that year. And then I get to come to Dallas and they're going to make a middle linebacker out of me here and uh, got to play behind, have Leroy. I played behind Leroy Jordan, but he was my teacher. And uh, it, that was just like, you know, he had the same model as, you know, Bear Bryant, Jerry Claiborne. And then I had Leroy as a mentor for a year. So uh, I was pretty lucky to get to be around some pretty, pretty sharp people. And and Leroy Jordan had also played for Alabama, right? For Bear Bryant? Oh, yes. Leroy Jordan was an Alabama guy all the way. Yeah. yeah. And, and Bear Bryant guy. Yes. And it's and it's fascinating. So you you get drafted by the Cowboys. And it's interesting, you know, looking back at like the history of the NFL, like the draft obviously, you know, is people talk about the 1974 Steelers draft with all those Hall of Famers who came out. But when right. you look at other, you know, kind of top three or top four drafts, the 1975 draft for the Cowboys that you you were the number one pick for has to go down as one of the top five drafts of all time. They get 12 guys on the roster. You and Hollywood Henderson come in the first round. Henderson coming from Langston College, by the way. And then a right. whole slew of guys who would start for the next decade. Burton Lawless, Bob Brunig, Pat Donovan, um, Herb Scott, just a great lineup. And you you come in, and like you said, you were a defensive end at Maryland. They want to put you at middle linebacker. Leroy Jordan's in his mid-30s, so his career's kind of winding down. Um, and then and then after, what is it, like I guess your second year, Tom Landry comes to you and says, I'm thinking of moving you inside the defensive tackle. Tell me about that experience and, and kind of you know what you thought when he came to you with that. Well, the middle linebacker position, uh, I I tried to I tried to get the hang of the flex defense, and it just never did click for me. Uh, and Bob Brunick, who ultimately became the middle linebacker after Leroy, it was like a natural position for him. He he just fit right in there. And I remember Coach Landry called me in one day, and he didn't tell me. He asked me, which really surprised me. He said, Randy, we're thinking about moving you into the defensive line. What do you think of that? And I said, Coach, I will play wherever you want me to play. I said, I just know I can play football. And I said, I, I know I can. I want to help this team win football games. So he said, okay. And he moved me into the defensive tackle. And my coach, Ernie Sautner, uh, you know, spent a lot of time with me, uh, you know, teaching me that position. But, uh, you know, and I never, I always said, I wish I would have had some time to spend with Bob Lilly to let him show me how to play that position. But Bob had, you know, moved on and, and uh, he didn't really come around. I never, he never came around. I never met him to like my third or fourth year. Uh, which was, was a great experience to get to know Bob Lilly. But, uh, you know, Ernie, Ernie taught me that defensive tackle. He played for the Steelers. He was a, he's a hall of fame defensive tackle. So, uh, you know, it, it, and then it, it worked out. It just was like a natural position. I felt like somebody, I felt like I would had handcuffs on and somebody took the handcuffs off and said, okay, now Randy, now go have fun and play. And it, uh, it worked out. Uh, it worked out well that uh, the defensive tackle position worked out well for me. I was undersized, uh, but in the flex, I was protected. And uh, you know, like I said, Coach Landry, he made you a student of the game. You just didn't go out there and play. You had to know how to draw the opponents. They were going to run up, run against you. We had computer printouts before anybody else that would let us know what their tendency were in different situations. Uh, you know, so it was uh, it, it was a great experience for me playing in that defensive tackle position. Yeah, and and um, 
like I said at the beginning of the show, when you retired, you were number two all time for defensive tackles and sacks. I think you're still number three. Um, the other guy, the guy ahead of you is Alan Page. And you two had one thing, in co- well, you had many things in common, but you had one thing that stands out in common is that both of you, while being a little on the undersized side, were both fast. You ran a 4.640 at your pro day um, at Maryland, right. which for a defensive, you know, for a guy who ultimately plays defensive tackle is crazy. Yeah. Back then it was. Yeah, it was. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so the speed obviously, you know, was part of what gave you some edge. Oh, without a doubt, without a, it, well, it was, it was, is the speed. And then I was always a big advocate for continue trying to stay, you know, and, and strong from lifting weights. I felt like that, uh, that helped me, uh, tremendously being strong. And, uh, so if I can run and I, I'm strong enough to, to hang in there and handle the, the especially when they got bigger, you know, I, I start playing against Bob Young and Russ Grimm and these guys are getting up over 300 pounds and I'm weighing about 260, 255. If I eat a lot, maybe 265, but, uh, <laughs> you know, but my endurance, I always felt like, I could get them in the fourth quarter because I wasn't tired. I, I always tried to stay in great shape and, and I would, uh, I wouldn't get tired in the fourth quarter. Now, sometimes, yeah, in the heat there in that stadium, you would, but, uh, you know, being in good condition was always, always a priority for me. Yeah. Even if the heat was getting to you, as long as it got to the other guy more, you were in good shape. Exactly, exactly. And then in the fourth quarter, I felt like, okay, work my butt off here to stay in shape. I, I ought to I ought to be able to do something here in the fourth quarter. And a lot of times we made a lot of good plays in the fourth quarter to come come back and win. Having Roger Staubach at quarterback made a big difference there too. Yeah, so. that never hurts. <laughs> and and 75 was a funny year. So your rookie year, 74, they don't make the playoffs. And right. a bunch of guys either retire like Bob Lilly um, or Cornell Green, or they they go elsewhere like Calvin Hill, um, Bob Hayes. Like it's kind of a team in transition, but that that huge draft class helps, right? A lot of starters come out of that draft class, um, and then like you say, a year or two goes by, then all of a sudden you're in at defensive tackle. Your Rookie year, you go to the Super Bowl. You lose in a close game to Pittsburgh, 21-17. You get there with the Hail Mary against my Vikings. Um, what, what was that like? Even though you weren't, you know, kind of a starter, you, you weren't on the field as much as you probably wanted to be. What was that like going to a Super Bowl your rookie year? Well, are you talking about that dirty dozen, the, the 12 guys that made the team uh, my rookie year? Right. You know, I think we we brought a different type of enthusiasm to the veteran players. Cause you know, we all played special teams and we were like a bunch of rabbits running around out there making plays, trying hard, you know? Uh, and I think we inspired the veteran players to a certain extent. Uh, you know, one of the reasons why we made it to the Super Bowl by rookie year, uh, you know, Nobody told us we weren't supposed to win. Right. You know, so that was a, uh, you know, that dirty dozen. That that was a great experience where we all grew our beards out, uh, you know, like the movie, uh, the dirty dozen. We did that, but no, that was, was, I think that brought uh, brought a little different attitude uh, to the to the Dallas Cowboys football team, having the energy of all those young guys running around there, you know, <laughs> we didn't always know what we were doing, but we were we were going a hundred percent. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I wanted to mention that you mentioned I, I was thinking of something else, but that a dirty dozen. What a great year! And I still talk to. Uh, uh, Burton Lawless and I, Bob Brunick were roommates when we were rookies. 
and they had some kind of get together for us and we uh uh got to see each other I hadn't seen i see burton periodically i hadn't seen bob in a long time but uh it's good to see those guys yeah that's, that's cool and, and when when the hail mary which i mean now it's such a, like a familiar part of our vocabulary like the concept of the hail mary but it, when when it, roger threw that ball to drew pearson nobody had ever heard of a hail mary in football before when he threw that ball what were you thinking were you just thinking ah this you know this game's out of reach or did you guys always believe oh i mean that was a great play uh i don't really think about it much other than if we scored a touchdown and we could win the game but uh it was a uh you know it was just one more great play that I saw Roger Staubach make in the fourth quarter to win. Now, when when as we when we had Roger there, uh, we all felt like, hey, as defensive players, if the game was tight, all we had to do get Roger back the ball, he's going to find a way to uh, score a touchdown. Right. You know, and and he would. Nine times out of ten, we'd win those close games at the end of the game, and we just started expected to win them. Right. And that was all because of Roger. He'll he'll never take credit for for it, but uh, you know that's that's because of Roger. 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 We believed in him. We believed in everybody, each other. But you know, Roger was something special. Yeah, and and by seventy seven. Now this is when you're starting at defensive tackle and that, that front four has come together. Now it's Harvey Martin and you on the right side, it's two tall Jones on the left and Jeff Ropew's kind of coming towards the end of his career. You've got Larry Cole there um, who, you know, proved to be able to kind of slot in anywhere. Um, and then the defensive backfield, you've got two of the best safeties, one of the best safety tandems in the game in Cliff Harris and Charlie Waters and a couple of young corners, Barnes and and uh, Aaron Kyle and Randy Hughes, tell or uh, Mark Washington rather. T- tell me a little bit about as that defense came together. Like, did you know? Obviously, basically replacing the George Andre, uh, Bob Lilly, you know that defensive line from the '60s and early '70s. I mean, those those guys were had a great, great defensive line. That I guess they they call them Doomsday One. I mean, that was. Uh... They're, they're the ones that set the standards for, just like I mentioned Bob earlier, you know, he set the standards not only for me to try to reach, for every other defensive tackle in the league to try to reach. I mean, he was he was the guy. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, and then we had, when we had Harvey and Ed and, and uh, Jethro, uh, and then Larry Cole, like you said, Larry Cole could start at any position on that defensive line and be successful. He, I'd say Larry Cole was probably one of the most unselfish players that I ever played with my whole football career because Larry Cole would grab two guys and, and I would come around and make the tackle and I'd get all the glory, but Larry Cole do all the work. And I'd say, Larry, I got to, I got to give you credit for that. He said, no, Randy, don't you dare give me credit. He didn't want credit for anything. <laughs> he just, he, he wanted to help me do good, but, uh, you know, and we have had Harvey's as good a defensive end that ever played in the NFL. And Ed is as good a defensive end that ever played in the NFL. I'm sure. Uh, you know, I'm surprised they're both not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But uh, that's another day, another subject. But uh, we had we had some great players. You're you're exactly right. You know, Ed Harvey, Larry Cole, and then we got John Dutton. Then we had Don Smerick. We had then we got uh, Jeff Coke. But uh, you know, we had Ed Ed Harvey, and uh, that was a that was a pretty good defensive line. Oh yeah. I mean, and, and it's crazy to think Harvey Martin, his roommate at East Texas State was Dwight White, who was part of the Steel yeah. Curtain defense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Harvard, every time we played Pittsburgh, Harvard, Harvard always know him. Harvard and I are pretty good friends, and we, he'd talk, he'd tell stories and talk about that. So, and so that year, 77, you guys go 12 and two, 
you um, you beat Chicago and Minnesota in the playoffs, and then you play Denver, and you win twenty seven to ten. Uh, you and Harvey Martin are the co MVPs. You guys force eight turnovers in the game. I think it's four interceptions and four fumble recoveries. Tell me about like the, just the experience of, you know, you're starting in the Super Bowl. You're the MVP. The defense was just lights out. Um, you know, I think they, I think Craig Morton passed for like 60 yards. It was crazy. Tell me about that experience. In 75, we go to the Super Bowl and, you know, we did 12 rookies. We, we didn't really know what it meant to go to the Super Bowl. Right. I hope that makes sense. Uh, I mean, it was great honor, a lot of fun. Uh, going to the Super Bowl, but when you go to a Super Bowl and you experience that, uh, and we lost that game in 75, when we had another opportunity to go in 77, I know to me, I understood the uh, the impact of what it was to go to a Super Bowl. And so that that seventy seven game we played Denver, uh, and then that next year we again we went Super Bowl again. We played Steelers again, uh, but yeah, that that is an opportunity. And I just figured that we well surely we'll go back to another Super Bowl. Uh, we went to three my first four years, and then I never went never had opportunity to go back to another Super Bowl. Played in three NFC championship games and I lost to Philadelphia, Washington and uh, San Francisco. So, right. so uh, anybody out there listening, that's going to the Super Bowl, <laughs> making most of it. Cause you never know if you'll ever get back again. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know with Dan Marino, I think it was his second year he went, and I think, again, I think you just kind of have that feeling like, oh, yeah, well, I'll be back. You know, it's too bad we lost, but I'll be back. And then you realize just how tough it is. Oh, yeah, it is. And it's a it's a great honor to, uh, you know, to have that Super Bowl ring. That's what I want. I want one of them Super Bowl rings. I, I can remember that. I want to get one of those Super Bowl rings. So, <laughs> And that you mentioned the 78 team that um, – that went to the Super Bowl against Pittsburgh. You know, great game, back and forth. Um, at the end of the season, the team film is put together, and it's called America's Team, which obviously is a name that has stuck, you know, 30 or 40 years later. Uh, what did you guys think about, like, did you think much of that at the time, or, you know, was that just not, like, a real focus for you guys? Yeah, I didn't, we didn't think of it much, but it gave ammunition to the team you were playing against. How would you, how would you like to be playing America's Team? <laughs> oh, where's go? <laughs> no, that was a great marketing uh, marketing for the business side of it. Uh, but as a player, I didn't really it didn't really bother me. But it did seem kind of funny that uh, you know the other teams we gave them ammunition to get on us. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and speaking of giving other teams ammunition. Um, I mean, obviously you always want to be confident going into a game, but sometimes, like you said, you, you know, how much ammunition do you want to give a team? One of your teammates was Hollywood Henderson, who loved to talk before games Yeah, about Terry Bradshaw. He said, he's so dumb. You could spot him the C in the A and he couldn't spell cat. Um, well, which of course, on the cover of time magazine, wasn't it? Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. He was on the cover of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. given, you know, given some bulletin board material for the Steelers. Is that one of those things where you guys are like, come on, man, what are you doing? Yeah, Tom, Thomas, I don't, well, Thomas did what Thomas did. Uh, <laughs> and, the, and the Steelers, I'm sure they didn't need any extra ammunition, but if they did, they sure got it from that. <laughs> Bradshaw. <laughs> we have Bradshaw would, but oh, well. Yeah, that's what makes it fun. You know, we did, if those things didn't happen, we would, we couldn't be standing here talking about it now. Exactly. And and on Thomas, that team, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, yeah, Thomas is just Thomas is just a character. That's just that's one of the greatest athletes that I've ever had 
opportunity to play with, but uh, just the character. I mean, yeah. he was something. Um, and that year, that that Super Bowl, obviously Jackie Smith, Hall of Fame tight end, who you went out of your way to to um, thank in your Hall of Fame speech. He was on the team. Yeah had that tough drop, but you went out of your way in your Hall of Fame speech to say that it was a pleasure being your teammate for that one season. Tell me about Jackie. Well, Jackie Smith was a great player, and he brought a lot to the team. And I had heard about Jackie Smith because he was a tight end, but he played like a defensive tackle. I mean, he was a tough guy. And, uh, and you know, Jackie Smith, he dropped that pass that Roger threw. And I, I always say, you know, I fumbled a kickoff in that particular game and the Pittsburgh Steelers recovered it and scored a touchdown on that drive. And I always said, if Jackie hadn't dropped that pass, they would be blaming me for losing that game. <laughs> so, uh, and it, it, that was, that was one you'd like to have back. And you t- think about all the good things that happened and all the great games you, you had opportunities to play in. But when you, when I think about Super Bowl, that will always pop in my mind every time. It does not fail. That play will haunt me to the day I die. Ah. Yep. I got you. Yeah. It was a hell of a game. It was a hell of a game. And, and obviously by that point, you know, starting the year before that, you've got Tony Dorsett in the backfield picking up a thousand yards a year. What was it like the first time you saw him come into uh, training camp? Well, I was so uh, well. This I, this is what I say. I'm so happy that 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 we got Tony that next year because the Cowboys had the uh, the second pick in the draft the year they took me. Well, Walter Payton was in that draft. And I, I still say if, if they hadn't, uh, you know, and I bounced around a little bit until I found my spot there at the defensive tackle position. But I always say if it wasn't, if, if they hadn't drafted uh, Tony Dorsett, they would have would have looked back at their pick on me and thought, well, maybe we should have took Walter Payton because Walter <laughs> came out the same year we did. He is a great player and a great guy. And uh, I always said that as kind of like a, a little joke, but I wasn't joking. They they probably would have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I read somewhere I think when he first came in, and they they still had you kind of at linebacker, and you were like you know kind of chasing him on a you know a throw to the flat or something like that. You were like, all right, this is going to be tough keeping up with guys like this. Tony could go from one end of the field to the other end of the field. You just give him that football, and he could be up in the end zone on every play. I mean, Tony was a special talent, great as, as you know. He picked the best. Who's the best? Well, he got to be up there as the best, you know, in my book. Sure. Uh, and along with like Walter Payton. I mean, how do you pick one over the other? Barry Sanders. I don't know how you pick them over one over the other, but great. Uh, Great football player, uh, great teammate, uh, and, you know, we, we had that caliber of players. That's why we were able to be successful and, uh, you know, play in the playoffs every year or make the playoffs every year. Yeah. We had, uh, we had, we had guys of that caliber. It takes talent. We have great coaching, but, you know, it, it also takes talent. If you don't have that talent, you're not going to get there. Right. And in and in 79, Tutal Jones decides to to retire from football and get into boxing. And he's one of your line mates. Or was it just this was like a passion he wanted to pursue? Or was it a contract issue? Well, Ed wanted to try boxing. I mean, how many guys have the opportunity to decide – they're playing one professional sport, which is a miracle in itself, right? I mean, to get to play a professional sport, there's very, you know, if you look at the odds, there's very few guys that get to, to even get to that level. Right. But Ed, now he wants to go and he wants to box because that has been a passion of his his whole life. 
and he wanted to see how he could do in the boxing arena. So right. he retired football, which I hated to see happen. Oh my goodness. I hated to lose that to tall Jones over there on that, on that left end spot, because he would, all he had to do would raise his arms up. How many, how many footballs did he knock down? They don't keep those statistics, right? Right. How many footballs did Ed Jones knock down? How many plays did he stop? How many times did he make the quarterback pull up and Harvey or I would sack the quarterback just because he couldn't throw it over Ed's arms? Right. You know, so, uh, you know, Ed was, uh, Ed was a great football player, and I always admired him for having the guts to go and try and do something that he wanted to do. And when he came back, he was a better football player. His oh, hand, eye coordination, conditioning, his quickness, everything. Uh, I, I think it really uh, uh, helped his football also. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and when he comes back, all of a sudden you guys go on a run. I mean, on the one hand, a successful run, but on the other hand, probably frustrating. Three straight NFC Championship game appearances. So you're in the Final Four every year, but three straight losses also. Obviously, at this point, Staubach is retired. Now it's Danny White at quarterback. Um, right. And, uh, you know, Dorsett is still rushing for, you know, 1,200 yards a year. You've got Tony Hill and Drew Pearson playing receiver. So you've got, you know, a, a really potent offense. Um, and now you've got a couple of young defensive backs too, uh, Everson Walls and Michael Downs coming in. So you guys are, you know, statistically continuing to put up numbers, but you're just falling short in those championship games. Yeah. I mean, we get to the NFC championship game, but it just boils down to, you know, that fourth quarter and somebody's going to make a play and uh, you watch these games on television now. Some Somebody's going to make the play and then somebody's not. And, uh, you know, somebody got to go home. And very disappointing, but you just got to keep plugging and keep going. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get to go back to another Super Bowl. I sure would have liked to, but uh, it didn't happen. Yeah. And... By the time you start to get into kind of the early to mid eighties, uh, at one point you, you lose in the playoffs to the Rams with Eric Dickerson. What, when I think he was a rookie that year, what was, I mean, he was just a different type of running back. All of a sudden he's, you know, this big, tall guy, he's like a sprinter speed. The knees are high. What was it like seeing him coming up the middle? For me, I would rather have chased Eric around because he was bigger. Now, you had to wrap your arms around him. You didn't want to arm tackle a guy like him, but he was, he could run like a deer and he was big, uh, you know, so he was, uh, he was, a, was a great, great running back. And, you know, but for me to tackle him, it was easier for me to tackle him than it would have been a little guy, you know, cause he was bigger. So there's more to grab on to. Right. <laughs> He was great. He was a great runner. I'll tell you that. And he was intimidating when he, when he got in there and, uh, you look at him in the backfield, he's big as the defensive ends. He's running the football. That'll oh, get yeah. your attention. He's got the neck roll and the huge shoulder pads and the goggles. I mean, he just looked different than every other running back. Yeah. He didn't look like the guy that was going to get the ball. He looked like the middle linebacker. He was going to tackle you. <laughs> <laughs> And and it was interesting in by by eighty four, the like obviously Tom Landry, one of the iconic coaches of all time, but every coach you know has their moments, and he had earlier in the in like the late sixties, early seventies, he had Craig Morton and Roger Staubach, and he was like kind of rotating them back and forth, couldn't quite settle on one, and the team didn't get over the hump until he picked one, in this case Staubach, and off you went. And, you know, and won a couple of Super Bowls in 84. He's kind of going back and forth between Danny White and Gary Hogaboom. And there, what's that old line? If you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. And the team right. struggled. It was the first time you hadn't made the playoffs in quite some time. Was that frustrating as a defensive player having that kind of, for lack of a better word, quarterback controversy? Well, you know, it wasn't my job to worry about the, the quarter. Coach Landry would 
was a stickler for that. You know, that wasn't our, we didn't get in that argument about the quarterback. Okay. And, you know, if I could, if I could do my job perfect and never make a mistake, then maybe I had a, a right to question something somewhere else. But uh, unfortunately I made a lot of mistakes myself. <laughs> and uh, so I was, I was, I needed to worry about my own position and, and rather than worry about uh, uh, the quarterback position or the, any other position on that, on that uh, football field. We, you know, we always had a good team. We stayed together and we won together and we lost together. You know, you can't, can't point the finger at any one guy. Now the quarterback is important. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, you know, cause when Roger was there, I went to three Super Bowls in four years, like I said earlier. And uh, uh, I think Roger Stallback had a lot to do with that, our sure. quarterback. I would never, ever uh, say anything negative about Danny or Hogaboom or anybody else because they were out there doing their job trying to get us to the Super Bowl, too. So it's just the way it works. The sun don't shine on the same dog every day. <laughs> 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 and and it's interesting. So your your final year is 1988, and the team struggles. It's three and thirteen, and at that point you're basically coming off the bench more than starting. And it's the last year. Obviously, it's a transition year, right? Jerry Jones and Jimmy Johnson come in. So it's 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 incredible how this all came together. It's Bum Bright, Tech Schram, the GM, Gil Brandt, the personnel director. Tom Landry, the coach, Ernie Stautner, the defensive coordinator, your entire career, and the D-line coach, your entire career, and you. It's your last year. It's the last year for all of you. What, what was that like that year? You know, you've incredible, it had these incredible highs, Super Bowl wins, Super Bowl appearances. Last year's a tough one. What was that like for you as an athlete? Well, it was, I tell you what, it was tough. Uh, it wasn't any fun. I'll put it to you that way. Sure broken bone in my neck. I had number three vertebrae broken my neck, if I'm going to tell the truth. And, you know, I just had reached a point in my career where I couldn't perform at the level that I had in the, in the past. I mean, I was, I was beat up and, uh, it was time to retire. And I, I went into coach Landry and I talked to him, uh, and actually I had aspirations of, of, going into coaching and I coached, I went in and I talked to coach Landry and I said, coach, I'd like to see if coaching would be my future. I said, you think I could hang around and pursue a coaching career? And Ernie was fixing to retire. My coach, Ernie was going to retire. And, uh, coach Landry. So I remember coach Landry told me, uh, Randy, he said, I got a job. You got a job here as long as I got a job. And I think he got fired a couple of weeks later or three weeks <laughs> later. And, you know, I mean, Jimmy and, and, and Jerry and, and they're, you know, they wanted to bring in their own people and their own stuff. I under, I understood that. And, uh, so it was just, it was just time to move on. Uh, you know, if I, if I would have called Dan Reeves or I would have called Mike Dick, I probably, they would have, uh, you know, probably giving me a coaching job or giving me an opportunity to, to see if that was something I wanted to do, but, uh, it all worked out good. It all worked out good. And, uh, uh, had a great, great career with the Dallas Cowboys. And, uh, but the end, the last couple of years, ah, that wasn't, that wasn't any fun. No, right. that, that, that wasn't, uh, the other years that 12 years prior to that were, you know, we were rocking and rolling every year we were in it. Right, right. And it's amazing at the end, and and obviously, you know, people move around a little bit here and there, so it's never, you know, kind of a, a perfect calculation, but that that doomsday one defense that we were talking about, you know, Jethro Pugh, Bob Lilly, George Andre, it, kind of a combination of Pat Toomey and Larry Cole, they had like 380 or so sacks as a as a unit. You guys come in, you and Harvey and Tutal Jones, combination of Dutton and Cole. You guys have like over 400. 
that is, right. I, I think, along with the fearsome foursome Rams and the purple people leader Vikings, probably the most dominant front fours, at least statistically speaking, of all time. And to think that you guys were able to do that consecutively, two different groups coming through, is just amazing. And and even more so, the fact that that one spot, right defensive tackle, from when Bob Lilly came into the league until when you retired, almost 30 years, with the exception of a year or two in between when he retired and you got moved there, to think that that position was anchored by those two guys that whole time is just incredible. Well, that was a uh, that was a great position to play, especially especially for me because I had the experience of, of playing the middle linebacker position. Uh, so when they moved me to defensive tackle, I didn't have to worry about the pass, but I had a complete understanding of what every guy around me did because the middle linebackers got to know the, know the difference. Right. And that, and that had become a, a, like a, a great tool for me the knowledge that I gained when we would have a bad play, we could come in the huddle and say, okay, what happened, Bob? Boom, boom, boom. We'd identify the problem before we would get out there on the field. I mean, before the next play, you know, we didn't have to go to the sideline. So, you know, I, well, I said that earlier, Coach Landry was a teacher, but having that knowledge of having played middle linebacker, was a great advantage because I know when I had the freedom to take off and run at the defensive tackle position when I wasn't at the point of attack. So that uh, that knowledge really, really helped me. Yeah. <clears throat> and I saw I saw a great quote. You were talking about Ernie Stautner and, and the impact he had on you. I mean, again, your your position coach and your coordinator, basically your whole career. And I guess he he basically taught you to recognize, but also just told you, go with your gut. Like, I think as soon as he identified that you had that instinct, go with your gut, but you better be right a lot more than you're wrong or else you're both going to be in trouble with coach. (laughs) Well, Ernie and I had a unique relationship. I mean, I'd go to, he was my coach at the practice field and we'd go after practice, we'd go out to eat dinner, uh, drink a beer, talk, you know, he was my friend too. He was one of one of my best friends, and and uh, so I had a, a really unique uh, environment to uh, to play to play professional football because I don't I don't think many guys go out with their coaches and eat dinner and and hang out and go fishing on their days off. Ernie and I used to do that all the time. I can share one more thing with you that I think was. Uh, was important for me. Mm-hmm. Ernie had been through everything that I was going through, if, if that makes sense to you. Not just the football part, the emotional part, the, the, the outside of football, the relationships. The, and he would counsel me and he because he'd been through it. He'd done it. Mm-hmm. And that was such a, an advantage to me uh, he saved me from stepping in a lot of a lot of traps that I probably would have stepped right into, but having him as not only a coach but a friend was very valuable to me. Yeah, I guess that's pretty cool yeah. that you got to have him as your um, introducer at you know the presenter at the Hall of Fame. Hey, did you listen to that Hall oh, of yeah. Fame inter- about taking the? Uh, about being not feeling well and taking this suppository. Tell the story. Yeah, because I, I wanted to touch on it. I was cracking up out loud. Tell the story. This is this is when you're being inducted into the Hall of Fame. Ernie Stotner's presenting you, and he tells this story. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was the funniest thing. And I tell that story to this day. And and people look at me, I said, Well, my coach told it when I put it in the when I got inducted into Pro Football Hall of Fame, my coach, uh, Ernie Stoddard, told that story. <laughs> they go, is it true? I said, no. <laughs> yeah, and the, the story is you're, you're, I mean, to be blunt, you're constipated one day. You don't look good. And he says to you, what the hell is wrong with you? You tell him. And he says, well, here, you got to take this. You got to take a suppository. 
the next yeah. day he sees you and he looks at you and he's like, you look worse than you did yesterday. And you said, well, I, you know, I, I popped the suppository into my mouth and nothing changed. And he's like, that's not what you do with the suppository. <laughs> yeah, it tastes, it tastes terrible. <laughs> oh, it's oh, fantastic. Um, I, so I have to ask a couple of questions. So, so you're playing right defensive tackle. The, the, the guards, and I think specifically the left guards in the league at that time, I'm curious, who were the guys who just, every time you went up against them, you were like, oh, God, here we go again. Was it, was it Russ Grimm in Washington or Bob Young in St. Louis? Well, I was in for it every week, no matter who I played against, because they, they, they were coming gunning for me. Sure. But uh, uh, Bob Young. He and his brother Doug held the two-man world deadlift record, and he was 320 pounds before 300 pounders were popular. Uh, he was a tough one. In, in the running game, he was tough, you know, because Coach Landry moved. He wanted me to get down to 250 pounds to play defense, uh, to play middle linebacker. Then when he moved me to, to uh, defensive tackle, I'm still 250 pounds <laughs> and I'm playing guys like Bob Young. Well, back then they're 280, 290. Then Bob Young shows up. He's 320 and one of the strongest guys in the world. So he was one of the toughest guys I played against. Russ Grimm, he developed into one of the toughest guys I ever played against. Uh, you know, but everybody I played, you know, they, they, they they came gunning for me. Uh, I don't want to leave anybody out because they were all, you know, great, great players. I'll tell you, a guy from Chicago, a guy named Noah Jackson, he, they called him Buddha. He was a great big guy, big heavy guy. And he he was an expert at blocking the flex defense. He studied the flex defense and he learned some of the my techniques. Well, if you would dive at my legs and cut me, you would stop me from getting where I want to go. And this guy would cut me on every, I, just, I wanted to kick him, Moe's action, <laughs> but he was smart. And he, so to answer your question, there's a lot of, lot of great ones. And I, if I try to mention them all, I'd, I'd, I'd leave somebody off. But, uh, you know, I had a, I had a dog fight every week when I went out and played because, uh, you know, if they didn't get me, I was going to get them. So it was, uh, but that's when football was, I'm not saying, I'm saying it was a little different sure. back then. You know, I mean, we, we kind of went to war with each other. Now I see guys now, I, I shake their hand. I say, hello, I, I got nothing against anybody. But back then when we played, I didn't like them. You know, I mean, that's the way I played football. I didn't like the guy I was playing against. He was trying to beat me, and I was trying to beat him. You know, and, and that's the way – That's I remember going to the going to the Pro Bowl games and really not wanting to get to meet the guys that were in the Pro Bowl because you meet them, and then they're nice guys, and they got <laughs> families, they got kids, they got wives, and you – and you get to talking to them. Now, how are you going to get mad at them the next time you play them on a football game? <laughs> it's a great point. <laughs> yeah, it was tough, man. But, uh, no, nah, it, it, it was a great experience. And uh, I really do uh, enjoy uh, being around some of the guys I competed against uh, uh, physically, and on other teams, you know, that, that you, when you played against them, you didn't like, them, you know, I mean, I'll give me a good, like, like John Riggins, John Riggins, what, what a great guy. You know, I got to know John and, and uh, really, uh, really a super guy. But when I played against the Redskins, John Riggins, we tried to get John Riggins, you know. Sure. Who were the quarterbacks that were tough to get to? either because the offensive line protected them so well or they had the ability to just release the ball, you know, right before you got there. Who were the guys that kind of drove you crazy? 
Well, Randall Cunningham was the one that drove me crazy because you couldn't catch him. Right. Eagles, Randall Cunningham, he was, uh, as far as being evasive, uh, you know, I played against Joe Thigman, Ron Jaworski, Phil Sims. I tell you what, them guys are so tough. I look at these quarterbacks today and I think, my goodness, if you got hit the way we hit those guys, I mean, I don't know that they'd be able to walk off the field. <laughs> yeah, I've hit Ron Jaworski so hard it hurt me. And he got up and walked back to the huddle and said, how the heck did he do that? Bill Sims got up and, and he was on the ground. He got up, he threw the football at me and said a few choice words to me. And I said, I said to myself, I said, now, all right, Phil, now I like you more. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you could tell you, you liked him, you know, but, but he was a tough guy, man. You know, and, and uh, Theisman, Joe, he, he would mouth off. Joe would talk a lot, but i tell you what Joe did. Joe backed it up if you didn't get after him. <laughs> right. but, but we had a lot of fun. I mean, I, yeah, football was fun. Heck, I had a lot of fun playing football. Yeah. I, I saw I saw an interview of Phil Sims where he said that every time he shaves, he thinks of you because you, you hit him so hard one time, you split his chin. And when he shaves, he oftentimes nicks it where the scar is. And every time he's like, God damn, Randy White. <laughs> <laughs> but I tell you what, he got, he got up and took the football and smashed me with it and, <laughs> and told me a few choice words. And, and I promise you, I, right there when he said that, I looked at him, I thought, hey, man, I like that. You're, you, you're pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And so, yeah. so one thing I want to ask you before we wrap up, you early on in your career, maybe not early on, maybe like mid-career, they started to change some of the rules and offensive linemen could use their hands a lot more. And at that point you realized, okay, I, I need to you know figure out how to combat this. And so you started to get into the martial arts. I think specifically a guy named Larry Hartzell who had learned from Bruce Lee and it kind of allowed you to continue your career the way you did something you continue to this day, by the way. Well, our, our strength coach, Bob Ward, had a background in the martial arts. He trained with Danny Anasano and Danny was one of Bruce Lee's students. He actually taught Bruce Lee the weapons to, from the Filipino martial arts. Uh, and then Larry Hartzell and uh, Thai boxing from Ajahn Chai, Chai Sadasu, he taught us Thai boxing. Uh, when I started that, I, I got to be in the best shape I was ever in in my life. Uh, but we saw the value of incorporating the martial arts into football because, like you said, they were allowed to grab. They got bigger. So the techniques that, that we used, they weren't as effective. So uh, I started training the, the, uh, the Filipino martial arts and – uh, still do to this day, but it really, uh, I think it extended my football career and it made me a much more effective, better football player having a foundation in, in the, uh, in the martial arts to, uh, uh, you know, combat these guys that were grabbing a hold of me. If you don't know how to get their hands off, you're, you're not going to be very effective. So it was uh, very valuable when I watch games today and I see bits and pieces of, uh, of guys that can really use their hands and the ones that can use their hands and understand timing and distance are a lot more effective. They're some of your better players uh, in the league now that yeah. rush the pass if you watch them. And you don't have to be big. You don't have to be, you know, a monster. You just have to be strong, quick, and have the knowledge and the sensitivity to uh, react to the pressure that you're getting. So, well, so Randy White, I have to tell you, it's been so cool just to, you know, sit here and listen to 
you know, the stories about growing up in Delaware, the Maryland years playing for Jerry Claiborne, obviously the Cowboy years, you know, those iconic uh, uh, doomsday defenses that you were a part of and, and Super Bowl champs um, playing for, you know, legends like Tom Landry and, and Ernie Stautner. I liked this quote from Mark May. Excuse me. He was with the Redskins and then went into commentating. He said about Randy White, he was a fierce competitor. He was half monster. Most tackles just don't have the tenacity and the athletic ability that he had. He was tough to compete with. And I think that kind of sums it up. So um, so thank you very much for coming on to Chasing Hardware. It's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I, well, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.